on in. We're going to get started in a second. Hello, I'm Larry Jacobs. I am a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I wanna welcome you to our ongoing series of public conversations about our political world and public policy. Today, we have a terrific presentation and conversation. Um, but before we get to that, I wanna just let you know that we want you to be involved in this conversation. It's an important part of um, what we're gonna be doing over the next hour. You'll see at the bottom of the screen is a Q&A button and we're gonna to get to as many questions as possible. And I'm just gonna let you know, we've got a bias for questions that raise new issues, new questions, and um, may be challenging. Um, really excited today to welcome Suzanne Mettler. Um, and just to be fully disclosed, Suzanne and I are good friends, we're co-authors. Um, and we've known each other for a number of years. So this is a particular pleasure. Um, but I've also got to let you know that Suzanne Mettler is uh, a very distinguished uh, faculty and scholar. Um, she is the Clinton Rossiter Professor at Cornell University. She's published five books, including Submerged State, which was published in my book series at the University of Chicago. Most of the books that she's published have won distinguished awards because they are so outstanding. So this is really a very accomplished uh, scholar. In addition to these books, um, Suzanne has published the New York Times, uh, the For and Foreign Affairs and other kind of more public outlets. She is a powerful public intellectual. Today, we're gonna be talking about Suzanne Mettler's book with Robert Lieberman at Johns Hopkins University. The title of the book is Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. Professor Mettler, so good to have you with us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for welcoming me back to the Humphrey School. Uh, and uh, I, of course, wish I was there with you all in person, but uh, I'm very thankful for this Zoom environment that offers the next best thing for us these days. So uh, thank you all for, for coming today. Um, so I wanted to tell you briefly how um, this book came about. Um, I, at Cornell, teach a big class on Intro to American Politics, a big lecture class for undergraduates. I had taught this class when I was uh, an assistant professor just out of grad school at Syracuse University back in the 1990s. Then I didn't teach it for a long time, came back to it uh, around 2012 at Cornell. And it was like teaching about a different country um, because uh, so much had changed in the meanwhile. And we had growing polarization and declining trust in government uh, and a lot of dysfunction. And so I felt like I was having to run to keep up with teaching the course. And then we got to the election of 2016. And while this was going on, 
I found it extremely challenging because even topics that had been long established, like the legitimacy of American elections and the fact that you know most Americans would respect the results, and uh, topics like freedom of the press were coming into question, and I was um, was finding myself you know really perplexed. And it was at that point that I would find myself in conversations with other political scientists in my department who study countries around the world and uh, the decline of democracy and what, what makes that happen. And when I would talk to them, they seemed to have a lot of insight about the United States. And it was very disturbing. They would say, uh, well, you know, when we look at Donald Trump as a candidate, he reminds us of leaders we've seen in uh, Venezuela and Peru and Turkey and Hungary. And they would say, you know, democracies, they don't last forever. They come and they go. And the United States has had a pretty good run. For me as a scholar of American politics, this was, was mind bending. And I felt that I needed to learn more from them. So in 2017, a group of us uh, formed what we call the American Democracy Collaborative. It's scholars who look at uh, democratic deterioration worldwide, as well as some of us who study American history in politics to try to understand better uh, what the United States is going through today. And this book, Four Threats, emerged out of that. So now let me step back and set the scene for you. Political polarization had been growing for years. Each action by one camp provoked an even greater counter-reaction from the opponents. Then the president signed a law that made it more difficult for immigrants to attain American citizenship and easier to deport people who were deemed to be dangerous or from hostile nations. He signed another law that allowed for the prosecution of journalists who openly criticized his administration. Each were efforts to weaken the political opposition. The year was not 2017 or 2020, rather it was 1798, and President John Adams had just signed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Adams' emergent party, the Federalists, defended the acts as essential for national security, or as one congressman put it, there was no need to invite hordes of wild Irishmen, nor the turbulent and disorderly of all the world, to come here with a basic view to distract our tranquility. Indeed, no sooner was the ink dry on the US Constitution than Americans became deeply polarized. Public officials led the way. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, uh, for example, helped states governed by their emerging opposition party, the Democratic Republicans, to refuse to recognize the Alien and Sedition Acts. Ordinary Americans too took sides. Federalists and Republicans often resided in different neighborhoods and attended different churches. They each took on their own ways of demonstrating their patriotism, and sometimes violence ensued. As the decade proceeded, the conflicts intensified and the stakes grew higher. Political leaders had not developed the concept of legitimate political opposition, that groups could take different approaches to governing and compete with each other routinely through the political process. Politics took on the proportions of mortal combat because people believed the very survival of the young nation was at stake. Many Americans worried that monarchy might reassert itself or aristocracy would replace representative government or that some states might secede from the union and cause its demise. The point is that early American democracy was fragile. The overarching question for our book is whether we should also be worried today. Is American democracy genuinely in peril? 
Now, there are sound reasons even now to think that it is not. We have the oldest constitution in the world, complete with its system of checks and balances intended to fragment power. The United States is wealthy, uh, and that's a factor that makes the loss of democracy unlikely. In addition, while the nation in the 1790s included institutions that repudiated democracy, most notably slavery, and it did not become a full democracy, I would argue, until the 1960s and 1970s, it is still fair to say that democracy has progressed over time, becoming more robust and inclusive. And also, if we look around today, it has many features of strength, two well-established political parties, each with control of different parts of the federal government and many states, and active citizens who this year voted at the highest rates uh, since 1900 in the presidential election, which is extraordinary. And we have active news organizations. So all of these reasons make democracy today appear to be secure. On the other hand, it's not unreasonable to wonder whether democracy may be at the risk of deteriorating or backsliding. As we've learned from those who study democratic deterioration in other nations, these days we don't tend to see democracy taken at the barrel of a gun or canceled elections or the disbanding of the legislature. Rather, it tends to happen in more subtle ways. Typically elections are still held and yet democracy decays such that a nation becomes a hybrid with some democratic features, but not others, what some scholars call competitive authoritarianism. In other words, we shouldn't be thinking of democracy having an on off switch of democracy versus not democracy, but rather as a continuum. And the question is at any point in time, whether we're moving toward becoming more of a full robust democracy or backsliding in the direction of autocracy. So that's what we take on in this book. And we look at five earlier periods in American history when Americans were broadly worried about backsliding. And we look at what happened then, and then we analyze the contemporary period in light of what we've learned. Now, I should say by democracy, what we mean is a system of representative government with accountability to citizens. And there's four basic pillars that make this work. They are free and fair elections, the rule of law, the legitimacy of the opposition, and the integrity of rights, meaning civil liberties, civil rights, and voting rights. And these four features are the indicators that we look at in each of the five periods to see whether democracy is really um, in, uh, under threat and deteriorating or not. And we've also learned from those who study democracy around the world that there are four key threats that make it vulnerable. The first of these is political polarization. Now democracy works well when there are multiple groups and identities in a society such that people have overlapping affiliations and memberships. So for example, um, you might belong to one political party or the other, but in your place of work or in your place of worship or in civic organizations you belong to, you regularly interact with people of the other political party. What's problematic is when these differences increasingly sort themselves out and align so that it becomes like we're in two camps of us versus them. And when that happens, politics ceases to be a process involving negotiation and accommodation, and it can start to feel like opponents are instead our enemies. The second big threat is what's called what we call conflict over the boundaries of the political community. So democracy works well when the citizens of a nation broadly agree on who is a member and what their status is. 
If there's an unresolved formative rift in the nation's founding over who is included, it can reemerge as a source of trouble again and again, whether it's over race, ethnicity, or gender, or what, what have you. In the periods that we examine, battles over race take center stage, especially concerning those who are most overtly excluded in the nation's founding, African-Americans. The third threat is rising economic inequality. Places where inequality is high and growing are more likely to suffer democratic deterioration. The question is why? I assumed going into this, the idea was that the 99% would rise up and have a re revolution, but it's actually the opposite of that. When you have high inequality, the affluent become worried that the masses will impose redistributive policies and higher taxes. So to protect their interests, they seek to solidify their power and they're willing to support repressive measures to do so if that's what it takes. Finally, the fourth threat is what we call executive aggrandizement. And uh, this refers to the enlargement and concentration of powers of the nation's top leader in the United States, of course, the president. And the demise of checks and balances that can come with that, making a nation more prone to tyranny. Okay, now stepping back, all four of these threats have waxed and waned and combined in different ways in American history. Uh, in the period I was describing earlier, the 1790s, only one of them was unleashed, and that was political polarization. And all acting all by itself, it created a lot of havoc. But by the 1850s, three threats converged, and by the end of the decade, it led to the onset of the Civil War. Then again in the 1890s, those same three threats converged. And I wanna talk about the 1890s for a few minutes. In the decades following the Civil War, democracy for those who had rights to participate was quite vibrant. And this now included African-American men in the South who'd gained voting rights and were participating at high rates in elections and running for office, primarily as Republicans. Also, the People's Party emerged in 1892 out of the agrarian populist movement. And it also began to run candidates quite successfully. But at that very juncture, democracy was thrown into crisis. I wanna zoom into North Carolina in the 1890s. There, Republicans and populists noticed that if they joined forces running candidates on what was called a fusionist ballot, they stood a chance of beating the Democrats, um, who at that time in the South was the party run by white elites. And that's what they did. So in 1896, the fusionists managed to elect Republicans as governor and the majority of the state seats in the US House of Representatives and the state assembly. Democrats' worst fears had come to pass and they plotted their way back to power. In 1898, they staged a coup d'etat in the city of Wilmington. It was the state's largest urban area and it was a success story. African-Americans were moving into the middle class. Three members of the board of aldermen were black as were numerous public sector employees. The Daily Record was a black owned newspaper and as a daily, it was the only one of its kind in the nation. So democracy seemed to be on the rise. But on the morning of November 10th, nearly 2000 white men who belonged to paramilitary groups gathered at the city armory. They marched to the offices of the Daily Record, set the building on fire and watched it burn. Then they advanced through black neighborhoods and murdered hundreds of residents. They dragged prominent people from their homes and took them to the train station and made them leave town. Before the day was out, the coup leaders at gunpoint forced the resignations of the mayor and aldermen and installed their own in their place. 
A few months later, the Democrat party leader, Democrats party leaders statewide took measures to make their power permanent. They scaled back voting rights by establishing poll taxes and literacy tests. As one Democrat who was a state senator put it, he favored, quote, a good square honest law that will always give us a good democratic majority, end quote. What happened in North Carolina brought out into the open a major transformation that occurred during that decade more quietly all over the South as white elites shut down the political opposition. The federal government, meanwhile, including Republican presidents, permitted this. In 1898, President McKinley heard the pleas of African-Americans in Wilmington asking for help, but failed to intervene. As disenfranchisement happened in state after state, President Theodore Roosevelt simply watched. Then President Taft went so far as to praise the restrictive rules for excluding what he called, quote, an ignorant, irresponsible element from the electorate. By the end of the 1890s, all four pillars of democracy had suffered harm. The main result was the disenfranchisement of millions of black men and some poor whites. And once African-Americans lost political power, they subsequently lost their civil liberties and civil rights as well. Jim Crow was established and it lasted 60 years. And while Southern elites regained extra political power, not only to rule in their own states as autocrats, but also to exercise an outsized voice in national politics for the next half century. The politics of the 1890s reverberates in our own times. Then as now we witness a high degree of polarization and rising economic inequality, both of which have been on the rise for decades now. Some political leaders use conflict over who belongs in the form of race baiting and ethnocentrism to fuel anger and promote political participation among white supporters. And threats combine with each other in dangerous ways. In fact, unlike in any of the early, earlier periods that we study in the book, today all four threats are raging at high levels. That's because over the 20th century, the executive power of the presidency grew tremendously. It grew because Americans wanted presidents to have the capacity to respond to public problems and attend to national security. Yet those powers create opportunities for abuse by presidents who would use them for their own personal or political gain. We saw that in Watergate, um, a time when actually the other three threats were at much lower levels. And we've seen it again in the last four years. So the rise of the four threats long predated President Trump, but he has intensified them using the powers of the presidency to create larger political divisions, to fuel conflict over who belongs and to cater to the most affluent. Those threats have taken on a life of their own and they will continue to wreak havoc once he departs from public life. American history reveals that we can't take democracy for granted. It has been fragile time and again and and now is another such time. The questions for Americans must be how to make the preservation and restoration of democracy our first priority so that we can pass it on to future generations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Suzanne Mettler. We're talking about Professor Mettler's new book with Robert Lieberman, Four Threats. Um, and I have to say, it's a terrific read. If you are a history buff, this is a book for you. It's one of those kind of special books that takes you from the beginning of the Republic right up to today. There are not a lot of books like that. Um, I wouldn't describe it as uplifting, but 
there's just tons of fascinating research and actually terrific pictures. I don't know where you dug up some of those photos, but they're really uh, quite riveting. Um, so, um, you know, this is a book about um, kind of the, the, the risks that we have about the erosion of our democracy. And I'm curious your take on um, what has just happened. And I wanna dig in a little bit more because I look at the 2020 election and to me, it looks like a pretty positive sign minus what's happening at the current moment. But as you said, record voting, you know, perhaps 65% will be the highest since 1908. Uh, we've seen um, you know, tremendous engagement of both political parties. It was peaceful. Uh, we saw professional election officials uh, doing their job. There wasn't this kind of collapse of the rule of law. We're seeing courts, for the most part, following the, the rule of law as they um, take on some of the challenges by uh, President uh, Trump. The network, CNN, Fox, they've behaved, I would say, in a fairly responsible, consistent way. I don't see infringement on press freedoms. And so I look at that, and to me, what I'm seeing is um, some of that polarization loosened a bit. Uh, Joe Biden did very well in suburban areas, particularly among women, among folks who had voted in the past uh, with Republicans. Participation by people of color was significant and very decisive, but not necessarily in predictable directions. We see different results with Latino and Hispanic voters in Florida versus Arizona and Nevada. Um, Donald Trump has done his best to undermine this. Um, and yet he's, you know, he's not succeeding. It, it looks as if, you know, his hand is being played out and um, there are all indications the election will be declared and uh, for Joe Biden and he'll be inaugurated. So is that, um, you know, kind of a, a correction to this, this kind of dire picture that you're presenting about democracy? Well, I agree with everything that you're saying. And I think, you know, it's extraordinary, frankly, that in the midst of a pandemic, we had the highest voter turnout since we had in the early 20th century. I mean, that's extraordinary. And, you know, it is just a testament to all the Americans who found ways to vote this time around. But, uh, you know, that's part of the story. But there were also so many things going on over the past six months by um, President Trump and by members of his party to try to discourage voting, to try to make it harder to vote, you know, slowing down the mail service in the midst of an election, um, trying to discourage people from mail-in voting uh, and associating it with fraud uh, again and again. And, uh, and now that we are through the election for the president still to have failed to con uh, concede the election to, to Biden. And to the contrary, doing um, everything he can and with the assistance of other Republican officials who are trying to, to lean on the state and local officials and to urge them to not abide by uh, the law and principles of, of how we, we are doing things. And so, you know, I mean, there's so many examples of this, so I won't list them at length, but, you know, for example, we have the Secretary of State of Georgia, who um, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham 
called him and you know tried to get him to throw out the votes in lots of, of counties. Um, fortunately, this is a man with a North Star and he's refusing to do that. But what if he wasn't? Um, we have you know, Wayne County in, in Michigan, where um, there's been uh, a conflict over whether to certify the ballots. And President Trump himself called one of the Republicans who is responsible for that, trying to pressure her not to do so. So, you know, this continues at all levels. So I, what I see is two broad problems going on. One is that, and this, this well predates this year, I mean, frankly, since, um, Trump came on the scene as a candidate in uh, 2015 and 2016, he has worked to delegitimize American elections and to say that they are permeated by fraud. And it's very striking to me, if you look at polling data going back just a couple of years before that, the vast majority of Americans of both parties agreed that we could trust our election results in the United States. And that's no longer true. And you know we're and coming out of this election now it's over seventy percent of Republicans think that the election wasn't fair and that Biden won because of fraud. That's very problematic. It's it's problematic for the legitimacy of government most fundamentally. I mean it will also make it difficult for um, Biden to govern and to solve broad public problems that most. Americans are worried about regardless of their party. Um, and it's problematic for where do we go from here? I mean, we have so many big issues to try to deal with as a country, but this is just gonna be leading to um, a lot more dysfunction. And it, it worries me that then with subsequent elections, if we don't have uh, state and local officials running them who are as conscientious as some of these individuals um, that I've been mentioning, uh, that they, they will do what their party wants instead of just upholding the results of the election. I, I think everything you've said is very important and something we need to keep in mind. And yet I come back to the point I was making about the system, the system of laws and procedures. Everything you've said is a warning sign, but it's also the case that the system is working. It has worked. People voted peacefully. Their votes have been counted. And you can, you know, kind of um, create a uh, horizon of worry. Um, but in the present, people voted in record numbers. We saw um, the election process, the officials, secretary of states in blue and red states doing their jobs. We're seeing courts again and again following the law. Uh, we've seen the media using its, um, uh, its power as protected under the Constitution, I would say in a fairly judicious uh, manner in calling out the president. So I think, you know, for me, the issue here is less about the horizon and more about democratic procedures and, and the system itself, which I think by your own account, at, at the moment, it is working. It is, we haven't seen... Uh, the suspension of free press. We haven't seen uh, the kind of draconian 1890s North Carolina scenario breaking out. Yeah. Well, what I would say, and this is you know, what I really learned from working with this, the scholars who study countries around the world, is that we shouldn't be waiting for the moment where there are tanks in the streets and when you know, 
the president disbands Congress or something to that effect, something dramatic that we associate with, okay, now democracy is lost. That um, it has tended to be the case in countries around the world in the past few decades, that it happens more gradually and partially. And I would say, if we look at those four pillars of democracy that I mentioned, we are already seeing real deterioration, particularly with uh, free and fair elections for reasons I've been mentioning and the rule of law uh, and the legitim legitimacy of the opposition. So what I mean about the rule of law is that, um, you know, in the past four years, um, you know, uh, the department, if you think of the Department of Justice, uh, first Jeff Sessions is, was the um, attorney general and he was dismissed by Trump until he found someone who was willing to do his bidding for him, William Barr. And uh, he's been treating the Department of Justice as if it's his own personal law firm there to protect him on all sorts of things ranging from, you know, dealing with the emoluments to lawsuits that are brought forward against him to issues about the election. Um, and so, you know, to say the system is working, I would say, you know, it's managing, but there is a lot of deterioration going on. And that's a big concern to me. When you say rule of law, does the fact that we're seeing courts in multiple states rule against these, um, you know, factless uh, cases brought by President Trump, does, and, and these include judges who are appointed right. by Republicans, yeah. does, that, does that have any bearing yeah. in, in your that's, assessment of rule of law? That's absolutely very reassuring. Okay. Um, but it is disturbing that, um, that Barr himself permitted, uh, you know, encouraged bringing forward these lawsuits, most of which don't have a leg to stand on. And, and we've seen U.S. attorneys push back very hard right. on that yes. order. Yes. I mean, to me, it, it seems like, a, the, again, the procedures and the rules are being followed. I'm not disputing, mm -hmm. you know, the level of, of angst that, um, that, that you detect as, as reasonable. It just seems to me we, we need to be clear about, um, you know, the, the system itself versus these warning signs that you see about a future that uh, looks more dire to you. Yeah, I would say it's not just warning signs of the future that we're actually seeing crumbling now. And so, you know, um, I do this by, you know, keeping track of each of these four pillars and when events happen, thinking about, well, is this just a threat to this pillar or is it actually danger? And there's been an accumulation of, or, or is it actually causing crumbling rather? And there's been an accumulation of deterioration over the past few months. Um, and, you know, I think what really leads to this is the raging of these four threats um, and polarization being very strong so that people are willing to look the other way. They want to win at all costs, never mind what happens to these pillars of democracy. Let me um, go, you, you're, this terrific book that you've written, Four Threats, we're talking with Suzanne Mettler. Um, it it it's, <clears throat> has a terrific chapter on the Watergate crisis in the 70s, and then it, it kind of jumps to the current era. Um, and it's interesting that half century, I would say, is quite remarkable because it is a period of uh, enduring uh, nonstop constitutional disputes. You've got Ronald Reagan 
who used executive orders in ways presidents hadn't used in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, the crisis culminates with the Iran-Contra affair in which the presidents, the White House, um, boldly uh, disregarded a law to, to pursue a foreign policy it wanted and was very eventually open about saying the president can ignore law because his power is um, plenary in the area of foreign affairs. Then you move to, um, well, obviously George W. Bush, there were concerns about spying, about torture uh, that was forbidden by law um, uh, and Congress felt violated the constitution. Barack Obama uh, expanded drones. There was no declaration of war to do that. In the conservative press, there's great concern that um, under uh, President Obama, the IRS pursued and harassed uh, the Tea Party to the point that its ability to engage in the political process crumbled and may have contributed uh, to election defeats in, in 2012, which was a close outcome. Now, I put all that together and I'm looking at data about trust in government. And here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing when there's a Democrat in the White House, the trust of Democrats is high and the trust of Republicans is low, um, which is the case we saw with both Clinton and Obama. The, the Democrats under Clinton and Obama thought the president was doing a great job. They're very confident. When you have Republicans in the White House, uh, it, it's the reverse. You've got Republicans who are confident. So my question to you is, are our perceptions about democratic demise partisan? Are we filtering this through what we see as, as something that's hideous? Whereas, you know, lots of Republicans think the president is following the law, is following the constitution. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, um, so the, the power of, of the presidency has of course been growing since the 1930s and, um, you know, came about, uh, very much to you know, initially to respond to the, the Great Depression, very high unemployment rates, uh, and then uh, World War II, national security, and then on it goes. And, um, and so um, presidents of both parties have grown these powers and Congress has given a lot of extra authority to presidents over time, really ceded it to presidents over time. So, so each president comes along acquiring more power um, than the president before them, typically. Um, and what we've seen, you know, I think like when you're mentioning like the 1980s, looking back to the 1980s now, and I was like working in Washington some of those years, um, and, you know, things were so mild by comparison to, to now in that partisanship was much lower. Um, it was, you know, really just starting to increase, just starting to rise. There have been these you know, changes at the grassroots level and people's party affiliation and a gradual sorting out that emerged from the 1960s onward. And by the 1980s, elections are becoming much more competitive because uh, in any given election, um, Congress could change hands between the parties. The Republican party was becoming much more competitive than it had been um, against the Democrats. And so, um, so then the public officials in each are trying to distinguish themselves from each other rather than to engage in policymaking. And that just you know, becomes more intense by the 1990s and the early 2000s and, and, and so on. But then what begins to happen and what I think you're putting your finger on is that presidents use this growing executive power to cater to 
public, uh, to political parties and to party activists. And presidents, again, of both parties do that. Um, and trying to, um, especially when, you know, polarization makes it harder for Congress to act on big public priorities. So then presidents feel like they've got to get something done. They've got to convince their base they've done something. So they use those uh, executive powers of the administrative state to accomplish things that they can't otherwise. And both Democrats and Republicans do this. So, um, you know, I agree with you, you know, we, we do know that people's um, perceptions of this are partisan now, but I think it's emerged through that dynamic. Let's uh, move past the inauguration on January 20th. There's a President Biden, he puts in a new um, uh, uh, Attorney General. Um, will we revert to um, you know, kind of a lower level in your continuum of kind of dire threat to democracy to everything's okay. Will things recalibrate under uh, President Biden? So I, I do think that, um, that the future president, President-elect Biden <laughs> um, will, um, you know, for those concerns I have about the rule of law, I think we're gonna be in a better position in that he will staff the, um, the Department of Justice um, with people who are, are very conscientious about the rule of law. Um, and uh, and I, I think you know, that will help tremendously. But I think that these four threats, you know, I've been talking some about um, President Donald Trump, but you know, he did not create these threats. They long predate him. They led to his emergence as a candidate and helped him to get elected we argue. Um, and once he is gone from public life, they will continue to rage. Um, they've been very much, they've taken on a life of their own. And you can't stuff that genie back in the bottle. Um, I mean, it's really hard, I think, as you know, we political scientists know that once these things are unleashed, um, you cannot easily um, rein them in. And so the great effort needs to be to strengthen the four pillars of democracy. And, you know, I would strongly encourage President Biden to be promoting legislation um, that will do that. It's of course going to be challenging because of polarization. It's going to be very challenging um, to, to accomplish those kinds of things. Um, just picking up on uh, this question, um, we've got um, the steam. Um, sorry. We have a question here saying, this is the question, it's an anonymous attendee. Presentation seems quite biased. The true threat from, um, to, to American democracy appears to be socialism. Mm. Um, yeah, I, do, I don't think so. I think, you know, when you look um, across the American political spectrum, um, you know, the, the question is how much um, kind of, um, how much of a role do we want government to have to help to promote the economy, uh, to promote economic growth and to regulate the economy to, um, to rein in excesses of capitalism. Um, and, you know, I think that, that Americans have long been on, you know, 
on a, a spectrum from wanting less of that kind of intervention to more of that kind of intervention. Um, and that it's really not helpful to use the term socialism because you know we're really just talking about the degree of that kind of intervention that we'd like government to do. Thank you. Um, you talked in your presentation about the uh, diminishment of uh, the rights of people of color and particularly black Americans, uh, both to vote and participate and engage more broadly. Does the participation of African-Americans, Latinos and Asians in this election and particularly their, their you know, decisive influence in a number of congressional presidential races in states, does that suggest a kind of a, a maybe a, a more positive development in terms of that that threat of um, you know uh, exclusion? Well, absolutely. I mean, it is it's terrific to have high voter participation across the board, and it's excellent to have. Um, high participation by people of color uh, exercising their voice and making a big difference in the election. It's also, you know, it, it's very interesting that um, there were many um, Latinos, both in Florida and along the Texas border, who voted for President Donald Trump. And I actually think um, that's a good thing, <laughs> that that um, should be welcomed because um, the Republican party, the, as the two parties um, have become more polarized in recent years, one of the underlying dynamics has been that, you know, the US population has grown more diverse and the Democratic party has um, also diversified considerably and kind of kept up with that, um, the change in the US population. Whereas the Dem Republican party has changed less and stayed more of a white party. Um, and that has all kinds of effects that are problematic in a society that's really a broad, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial society. How can we have a democracy that is as well? Um, and so I think that's, that's a positive development for the Republican Party. Um, you talk about the rise of presidential power. Um, Dick Cheney, who was a member of Congress during the Iran-Contra affair was on the, the committee the Congressional Committee wrote the Minority Report. This was the beginning of the so-called unitary presidency account, which, which argues that circumstances, dire circumstances, require the president to take unilateral action, um, particularly when security is at stake. So I'm curious, does the, the, um, the reason or the circumstances facing a president impact your view about executive power. For instance, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus during the Civil War and other took other extraordinary measures. Was he, you know, um, killing democracy or was he defending it? Uh, today, we've got all sorts of threats, cyber threats, uh, um, germ warfare uh, threats, um, terrorist uh, threats. Are those circumstances in which we would say defending democracy means the president ought to be acting unilaterally? Yeah, I know. I mean, that's the argument that's made, right? But um, I don't buy it. <laughs> um, you know, I think that in the founding of this country, Congress is established as the first branch. And it's the branch that epitomizes representative government 
and it's the closest to the people and most accountable to the people. Um, and uh, the, the um, presidency, the executive branch have much more constrained powers. I think, you know, absolutely it's been appropriate for those to have been increased over time um, so that presidents can respond broadly speaking, but I think we, to, to broad public needs, but I think we need to be very careful. You know, it's always possible to justify these things, but we need to think long and hard about it because, you know, that is how you move toward tyranny. There are a cluster of questions here that, um, um, that reflect the one I'm gonna read now. If it's as bad as you say, isn't it already too late? No, <laughs> it's not too late. Why am I saying that? Uh, maybe just simply because I'm an optimist. Um, but no, it's it's not too late. And frankly, you know, all of these positive things that you were mentioning about the recent election are a testament to that, that you know, people were so involved even in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I do think that when, um, you know, it, it's heartening to me on the one hand that when, um, you know, even just like a few years ago when Americans were asked uh, whether they believed in all of these specific pillars of democracy, both Democrats and Republicans did at high rates but that's been fraying um, and becoming more aligned with partisanship. And you know, it depends upon which political actor is doing what, whether people, how people will respond now. But um, I think that so much cannot be lost already that we can't repair it. Okay, here's a follow-up question from um, Jim Hart, who's a distinguished uh, colleague here at the University of Minnesota. Of the four threats, which should Joe Biden attack first? and with the most figure? Well, you know, um, I actually, the argument we make at the end of the book is that attacking the threats is, is really hard because of the way that they become unleashed and that the, the more prudent thing to do, the more low hanging fruit to go after is, is strengthening those pillars of democracy, free and fair elections, the rule of law, et cetera. Um, you know, with, with the threats, I, I know that, um, that President-elect Biden will try to um, rein in polarization. And if anyone can, he's probably the right person to do it, but I still think that's probably unlikely for that to be uh, very possible. But what he will not do as a president, and I you know, feel quite confident of, of this, is he is not going to be trying to combine conflict over who belongs with polarization, um, which is, you know, what has been going on in recent years and is, is so um, detrimental. Um, and I think he is going to be trying to promote policies that lessen economic inequality. So, um, so that's also very positive. I was surprised in reading the book, there's not a lot in it about the US Constitution. And often books about American democracy will have a kind of backbone uh, that's made up of the constitution. And there are a lot of ways in which people have thought about the constitution and democracy, obviously in spelling out the rules of the game and, and stipulating in writing rights that we all have as citizens. But also the constitution tends to shape the language we use in describing um, 
our, our battles over politics. It also shapes where we have battles. I was in um, the United Kingdom for most of a year and Boris Johnson was doing things that were unprecedented. They don't have a written constitution. There wasn't you know, this sense of constitutional crisis in the way that we think about it, you know, executive power. It was defined in more partisan terms um, and more personal terms about Boris Johnson. What is your thinking about the independent role of the constitution in thinking about American democracy? Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely the constitution structures the way we carry out democracy. Um, but I think in terms of the constitution protecting democracy, when there's a lot of threats against it, it doesn't protect us all by itself. And that's what we found in, in each of the periods that we looked at. Um, you know, certainly the constitution fragments powers in lots of ways, but, um, and it can seem that it protects us in a period like when we were growing up <laughs> and when the threats were at much lower levels. Um, but then once the threats are raging and um, the political system becomes vulnerable, the constitution um, can't protect us by itself. It, it takes people who exercise their agency to protect democracy. Um, and, and so, you know, that would be my, my major point. Um, it's, it also, you know, the, um, the Constitution, because it fragments power in so many ways, in order for us to accomplish things in the United States, to create policies that address major public problems, you need to build big coalitions to do that. You can't do it otherwise. It just doesn't work. And um, so polarization makes that very difficult. And as that's been happening in recent decades, polarization rising, diff more difficult for Congress to govern, um, then I think you get the emergence of anti-government attitudes because people, regardless of, of their partisanship, they feel like government's not responding to them. Um, but the other issue is that polarization makes it easier for one party, if it behaves very strategically, to stack the deck against the other. And that's hard to do in the United States, given our US constitution, but it's possible. And I think we've been seeing a lot of that going on. Follow-up question here from one of our friends in the audience who uh, notes that many of the steps that Joe Biden might take would require executive orders and other prerogatives by the president. Won't this simply contribute and perhaps further accelerate the very strain on American democracy that you've described? Yeah, well, I do think that, um, I mean, I think that's a good question to raise and I have that concern. And um, what, um, what Biden can do initially in ways that will strengthen American democracy is for one thing, very simple things like projecting the values of democracy, trying to, to unify Americans rather than to divide Americans. Um, and then staffing up the um, federal bureaucracy with people who are, are very competent and who take the rule of law seriously, all of that will help. And all of that is without using extraordinary, um, extraordinary, you know, kind of executive power. Now, beyond that, you know, we can hope that Congress will, uh, will work with him 
um, and that he will be able to, to build some, um, and that Democrats will be able to build coalitions with Republicans to accomplish some major things. If that doesn't happen, he, he will likely use more um, executive orders and that kind of thing. And it's, it's not what I like to see. But, um, you know, that is where we are. It's where, you know, President Obama, it, during his first two years as president, had, um, you know, these very large Democratic majorities. Um, it was actually, you know, if you go all the way back to 1980, um, there have only been these large Democratic majorities in both chambers um, during the early Clinton term and the early Obama term. And there were only four months since 1980 when a Democratic president had both those things and a filibuster proof majority in the Senate. Um, so, and you know, it's because of that that the Affordable Care Act was enacted um, and, um, and, and some of the other achievements of, of the Obama presidency. But then once um, the Democrats uh, did very poorly in the 2010 election with the you know, resurgence of the Republicans and the rise of the Tea Party, then Obama said to his staff, okay, we've got to push the envelope and see what we can do through executive power. And this was a president who had, you know, when he was running for office, said he disapproved of that kind of thing. It's what presidents do now when they can't get things done through Congress. And I'm sad to say that. Jeffrey Arnold asked, George Washington warned about the rise of political parties. Have we gone too far in terms of our political parties? And does it make sense for us to reverse this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And of course, you know, George Washington, I gained a very different view of him in writing this book. Um, you know, I think we always revere him. It turns out that Washington himself was horrified by active citizens who were forming what were called the Democratic Republican Societies. And, and these were these groups of, of men in many different states that were trying to simply educate themselves on public issues and speak out in between elections about them. And uh, George Washington um, was horrified. And he would say, you know, we're only supposed to hear from citizens at election time, not in between. Um, so, um, and, and, you know, the Federalists of which, you know, he was one really helped to drive polarization in that time. So we can't be too, um, you know, use rose-colored glasses to look at the past. But looking at the present and parties, you know, it's really interesting because obviously parties are very strong today when we look at Congress and what's going on in Congress, and they're very strong and elected officials. And they're very strong in terms of, you know, we all know lots of people who identify as either Democrats or Republicans, and for whom that's a very strong identity. But parties, the other level of parties, which is organizations at the grassroots level, they're very weak. And I think that's actually a source of some of our problems today is that we have a strong partisanship and uh, weak parties. And this idea comes from another political scientist, Julia Azari. Um, and, uh, and I think that's problematic because then the parties are not in good touch with local people. Um, and they can become driven by activists who tend to have more extreme views than people at the grassroots. Does it make sense then to elevate the visibility and viability of other political parties other than the Democratic and Republican parties? Well, uh, you know, it could be that it is, is time, you know, it's several times in American history, the parties have transformed themselves 
Um, it's uh, given our political system of winner take all elections and single member districts, um, it doesn't work well to be a third party. You just become a spoiler and you don't um, have a chance of, of winning. Although sometimes third parties have transformed themselves into one of the two major parties. And um, certainly when I was talking about the Democrats and Republicans of you know the last century, it was probably confusing to people because they've changed so much since then. So, you know, it could be that it's a time for some of, of that kind of transformation, um, but, um, but given our, our rules of the game, we really are a two-party system. In your description of democracy, free press is a prominent part of it. We do see today that social media is spewing out misinformation, conspiracy theories. It's helping to uh, propel the polarization and some of the other negative effects uh, that you've discussed. Is there a case for looking at ways for restricting in some respects, the freedom of the press? Hmm. Wow. Um, you know, one of the themes that was really striking to my co-author Robert Lieberman and I was how the press has been a major actor since the very beginning. So, you know, you go back to the early 1790s and you, you had some of the, the founding fathers were the creators of our first partisan press, truly partisan press. They were publishing, and you know, anyone who's seen the musical Hamilton has gotten a taste of this. They were publishing what we might call anonymous op-eds and against, and, and you know, saying terrible things about each other in print. Um, and again and again, in each of our periods, the press plays a major role. Um, I, I, don't, um, I don't think that, um, you know, heavy regulation of the press um, is a good idea and freedom of the press is really important in the United States. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing today is on the one hand, there are some um, real concerns about, um, very partisan media and and people's ability to sift through information that they receive and social media um, to sort it out for for what's fact based um, and what's not. Um, at the same time, I think that the media, which has you know really diversified over time, um, has been characterized by very high standards in this period, and that it has been a bulwark of democracy. But including the social media world. Well, you know, I am concerned about the social media world, and yeah, you know how to go about that. I, I'm not the expert on that. Um, probably, Larry, you have a lot more thoughts about this than I do um, as a scholar of the media. So I got two last things I want to ask you about, or one one last question, which is, it's striking that you describe kind of this, almost like a downward arc in democracy, um, or a, an arc in which it's very problematic all the way along the line. Because I would say, you know, whether the launching of the country was democratic or not was a, a big question. Um, in the 1770s and 80s, you had real democracy in the States and the reaction of Madison and the other group, others who got together in Philadelphia in 1787 was to contain it, to restrict it. It's why we get the electoral college. So do you think in some extent, the, the, the problems of our democracy stems from its problematic origins? Oh, uh, well, well, I do. I do and I don't. I mean, I, I think that 
democracy has become more robust over time. And most of my work up until this book was really about the arc of democratization in the United States. And, you know, which I think has become much more democratic um, over time and, and, um, and, you know, really becomes a full democracy by the 1960s and 1970s. Um, but, you know, I do think this idea of the formative rift that if you have people who are really excluded in the nation's founding, that that can create a problem for democracy again and again, and how that happened in the United States around race is a really fundamental issue that we need to continue to grapple with. Can you hold on one second? I wanna just make a few announcements and then um, talk about your book again. Um, I wanna just let you know, we got some great events coming up next week. Uh, we have uh, a terrific program on polling in 2020 includes a uh, renowned political science professor at Columbia University, Robert Shapiro. Um, and it also includes Kathy Frankovich, who used to run polling for CBS News um, in New York. Then we have Jake Sullivan coming in on Wednesday. Uh, Jake is going to be talking about the Biden foreign policy. Those of you who know Joe, Jake know that he comes from Minnesota. He's back here frequently. Uh, and then he's also in the inner circle um, uh, in the Biden world. So we'll get some good insights on that. Um, I'm really excited. We're going to take a break from some of the, the political world. We're going to have two terrific writers coming in, in December and separate events. Charles Baxter, who's a National Book Award finalist and a famous writer. Um, he's going to be with us uh, December 3rd, later in the month, uh, Newbery Prize winner, Kate D. Camillo who's famous in the kids world, uh, will be also visiting with us. So a lot to look forward to. I wanna thank you for joining us. I wanna also let you know that uh, right now there's Give to the Max Day and uh, please consider giving support for our center's program um, for policy fellows. It's a terrific program. It uh, tries to do a lot of the things that Suzanne Mettler just mentioned. A recording of this event will be available uh, within the next 24 hours, it'll be up on Zoom. It can also be captured on, um, on, as a podcast. So there's great. I wanna conclude though, by thanking uh, my good friend and esteemed um, colleague, Suzanne Mettler. Um, her book, I'd like to hold it up for you because you can see what a beautiful gift it would be for anyone you know who loves history, American history. Uh, her terrific book, uh, The Four Threats with Robert Lieberman. Um, Professor Mettler, thank you so much for joining us and, and putting up with our questions. Oh, I've, I've really loved your questions. So thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And finally, I want to thank Lee Chittenden, who is the magic for everything we do. And uh, Natalie, um, who is uh, a, a terrific uh, graduate student at the Humphrey School and uh, helps to make this possible. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs>